expert insight, clear analysis, strategy in action. Welcome to the CEO to CEO podcast featuring the world's top CEOs. The podcast will welcome honest conversations meant to challenge traditional ways of thinking from fellow global industry leaders. This podcast will also explore the intricate world of M&A from an insider's perspective. M&A is a big deal, one in which you can drive the future of your business, your industry, and even the trajectory of the marketplace. This podcast is hosted by Kevin Campbell, CEO of Synity. Synity is a global enterprise data solution provider specializing in data operations and data transformation. Kevin is a global champion in data and has served as the former Group Chief Executive Officer at Accenture and COO of Oscar Insurance Corporation. This week, Kevin is joined by Derek Oates, CEO of SmartShift. Derek is responsible for growing SmartShift worldwide. With a successful track record in sales and leadership roles globally and in the Americas, he has a strong customer experience and solution mindset. Before SmartShift, Derek served as CEO Americas for SNP. He has held various leadership roles at the Tata Consulting Services, IBM, Oracle, and SAP, where he helped hundreds of customers modernize their SAP landscapes. Welcome to this week's episode of CEO to CEO podcast. Today we have on with us Derek Oates. Derek is the CEO of SmartShift. Derek has been in the industry for a long time um, and uh, has had several prominent positions and now is the CEO of uh, SmartShift. And SmartShift is a company, I'll let Derek tell you a little bit more in detail, but overview is that SmartShift's a company that helps people take that problem of custom code that they have uh, when they want to upgrade to new systems or to modernize their systems overall. So Derek, welcome to CEO to CEO. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate you having me on. How about if we start with, uh, give us an overview of your career. I actually went to school uh, to be a mutual fund accountant, if you can believe that. Um, that That lasted for about 15 minutes till I realized that that was certainly not for me. Um, I got involved in technology in the late 90s, uh, started out working as a help desk technician on um, the state of Massachusetts, one of the first DSL companies there. Um, I was literally answering the phones for the guys in the network engineering center and taking down basic information um, and realized then that I kind of had a desire to get further into technology. Um, So about three months into that gig, I actually got um, Cisco certified and became a router guy. And that was the entrance into technology space for me. That's, a, that's amazing. I couldn't see you uh, with your personality and outgoing nature. I couldn't see you being a mutual fund anything. So uh, I think you found your calling. Yeah, in fact, fast forward 25 years, I don't even run the finances in my house. My wife does. So um, you're spot on. <laughs> yeah, core competence and, and we've got it. So from there, how did you get to SmartShift? So uh, I was, a, I was a, a network engineer for a little bit and um, got into more hardcore technology, worked for a company called Akamai Technologies based out of Boston. Quickly into my technology career, um, to your point, I started to realize that um, the engineers and the salespeople would start to pull me in front of customers to do a lot of customer facing work. Um, it eventually evolved from a pre-sales um, person into a customer-facing account executive, um, then kind of transformed back into technology, um, got engaged with SAP back in 2006, and I've been working in the context of SAP since then. Um, 
I, I actually joined Oracle uh, back in 2009 and specifically worked inside the Oracle SAP Center of Expertise, which a lot of people don't even understand or, uh, or even know that, that Oracle still today actually has a COE uh, inside Oracle that supports SAP customers. Um, from, from there, going back to the beginning of HANA, um, I was on the ground at Oracle, saw the beginning stages of the HANA platform and quickly decided that I, that I believed very much in HANA's capacity to impact the market and kind of attached myself to the HANA train uh, back in 2009. Um, in 2014 or 15, I actually um, met Hasso Plattner, who's the, the founder or one of the co-founders of SAP through his blog online. Um, he had written up um, a pretty strong opinion on back in the day, what they called simple finance. Um, and I had started a discussion in his blog and through the blog, he actually set up a phone call. I ended up talking to him for 90 minutes and he recruited me directly into SAP. That's an interesting story. That's, that's the, uh, you know, responding to those blogs does work, right? And people do read them and pay attention to them. Yeah, it was kind of weird, honestly. So I, I, it all happened in the span of about a, a two hours on, on a day when I had just gone to his blog to kind of um, address some of the things that he had written, but I had a specific challenge presented in front of me from a customer. And I thought if I can get to Hasso to talk about this specific issue and kind of explain and try and learn some things. Um, I didn't think at the time when that happened that I would end up on the phone with him for two hours. Um, but that's what happened. And, and at the end of that conversation, he then said, Hey, you're going to come and work for SAP. And I said, okay. Um, and then, um, fast forward three weeks, there was a couple of, uh, uh, interviews. And the funny thing, I think to this day, I, I tell people when I went to actually fill out the formal application to join SAP, I actually had to write down in the referral box that Hasso Plattner was indeed my referral. So I have it, I have that framed in my office because it is a pretty cool story, but it's, it, I guess it, that goes in the, the notion of you never know who you're going to meet and how things are going to play out. Yep, exactly right. And so then tell us a little bit about your journey at SAP. When I, when I got into SAP, Part of the discussion that I had with Hasso coming in was how do we drive more adoption from um, a, a HANA perspective, right? What are the challenges for customers when they're looking at moving off of Oracle or DB2 at the time from IBM or Microsoft SQL Server? What are the what are the hangups and what are the, some of the main barriers to entry for customers that are looking to switch over to the in-memory database? And so one of the discussions I had with him at the time was I had a pretty strong opinion of, of of why customers were slow to adopt. Um, and so I got pulled in specifically to address um, some of these barriers. And, and lo and behold, you know, one of the barriers um, kind of rolls directly into uh, my involvement here with SmartShift. I'm, I'm relatively new to SmartShift, but not new to, um, I'm relatively new to SmartShift, the company, but not new to the functionality and, and the role that SmartShift plays in um, adoption of, of the platform. So. Um, one of the issues that customers had back in 2013 was what do they do with all the custom code, right? So you have a lot of these SAP customers that have been running um, SAP applications on top of various databases where they look at the configuration of the application and determine that they need to make some custom code adjustments to actually provide the functionality to their business. The challenge with that at times can be if customers don't follow the best practices and the guidance from SAP, they can end up in a situation that becomes unmanageable with regards to too much custom code that's not in use. They customize when they shouldn't, that kind of thing. So I became very familiar with SmartShift back in 13, 14, 15. 
Um, and then the other side of the coin um, uh, on, on comes the data um, piece, right? How do you automate the data transformation that needs to occur? Um, so at SAP, my primary focus was to help drive adoption from um, a HANA perspective and really attack the custom code issues as well as um, the data transformation issues. And one of the first things that I did at SAP when I got there in 15 was I was actually on the team that did the analysis up front of back office associates, um, you know, which obviously became Synity, uh, to determine um, the, the strategic um, alignment uh, between back office at the time and SAP. That's awesome, and we're thankful uh, that you uh, that you helped, uh, which got us onto that trail too. Um, if you if you had to describe SmartShift, you know, to the layperson. What, what, what would they, what, how would you describe them today? I, I would say that, that SmartShift is an automation company first um, that, that helps with custom code um, and continuous modernization of applications. So as, as SAP evolves and as their um, architectural roadmap changes to provide business functionality, SmartShift is an automation company that can help cut down the amount of effort, resources, and time required by influencing the custom code um, angle from an automation standpoint. Um, that's, that's how I would describe it. The other side to that is, you know, we also are able to help customers run and maintain um, their SAP deployments in an automated fashion uh, throughout the entire stack. But from a layman's perspective, I would say, we're, we're a facilitator of automation for complex SAP environments. Do you have a case study that you like to use that describes what you did for somebody? I, I do. So um, we have worked with the largest customers that SAP has. Um, you know, uh, we've worked with the likes of Airbus, the likes of Procter & Gamble, um, and on and on and on, BMW, large, large-scale SAP customers. Oftentimes, um, the custom code, as you can imagine, in these types of large deployments with, you know, global companies that have numerous instances, oftentimes in the hundreds, the custom code can definitely get uh, very high volume. So we work with the largest deployments that are out there, where if a customer has, let's say, over 100,000 custom objects that they've developed on as a result of business need over the last 15, 20 years, we're able to really automate and cut down the manual effort required to actually get those customers back in the day to upgrade their ECC, but now obviously to move to the cloud and to move to S4. Um, we've done this with um, many large customers that are that are in that higher, higher end space. And then on the flip side, in the mid-market, we've done the exact same thing, but then also taken over, run, and maintain responsibility from a managed services perspective. We've got a, um, a customer in Europe um, by the name of Milfisk, where we were able to consolidate um, all of the vendors and all the bills that they had to run and maintain in the cloud down to one bill and transform them from uh, ECC running on any database over to um, S4. So we, we've done that with, with many customers and that's, that's kind of where we play the main swim lanes. So when you got to SmartShift, um... I can see what attracted you there, right? And you were kind of in the ecosystem and knew about them for a while. So, so when when you came there, what what would what was the mission that you were given by the board? So so my first mission was to make SmartShift not no longer be the best kept secret out in the SAP ecosphere. 
I, I tried to make, I tried to accomplish that mission actually uh, while at SAP. Um, and so, you know, I've been formally on board with SmartShift now since the end of August. I moved into the CEO chair at the end of January. Um, I am daily working with my team um, to help with that effort, right? To get the word out about the role that SmartShift can play, not only directly with the customers, but also through the partner network. Um, that was definitely one of the first priorities and continues to be the priority that I have right now um, is to, to make sure that people are aware of the value that we provide, not only to the customers themselves, but also to the partners. Um, the second, I think, priority for me was to really put a tighter package around our software and really um, try and keep it Sesame Street simple in terms of the business problems that we can address um, with our automation and our software. Uh, clearly, you know, to every successful software company, there's always people. Um, so then tying that into the software and the people and where it meets from a solution perspective and then simplifying that message as to where we play has definitely been a significant priority for me, having been in this space for a while. Um, and all of that together is going to accelerate your growth, right? Absolutely. Which is, which is, which is part, do you have an ambition, double, triple, quadruple, or is the sky the limit? I mean, look, I, 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 I believe the sky is the limit. And obviously there's obviously uh, reasons to set proper expectations, but I, I do believe that there is a unique market opportunity right now um, to leverage automation in a way that, that has not been done in the past when it comes to the code and the combination of data automation, right? I think, you know, there's been uh, oftentimes in the last 20 plus years, a manual approach that's been kind of driven um, that has driven this type of transformation. But I think one thing that we've learned over the last 12 to 18 months is that in the economy where people are tasked with doing more with less, you absolutely with certainty have to leverage automation. And so the positive influence of that definitely makes me bullish on the opportunity here because I do think that there's an untapped market here um, where there's certain economies of scale that have not been recognized before because the importance of automation has never been in the forefront like it is now. How would you describe when you got there and the culture of, uh, of SmartShift? I've got the benefit of having worked with you and hearing a lot from my team, but why don't you tell our audience a little bit about what's the culture that, uh, that you have and that you're trying to grow there? Sure. So the culture is awesome, right? I like I'm new to the company, but I've known about this company for a while. Um, you know, our, our founder, Stefan Hetkis is still very much involved. Um, he's, he's, I would say he's a technical genius. Um, and he's very much involved in the, the vision and the strategy of our company today. The culture is one that, uh, we are definitely, I am, I am continuing off the baseline that was formed around, um, the ability to provide input at, at any level. We're, we're definitely open. We're, we're, um, we're very uh, broad in terms of where we take guidance from internally. There, there are no stupid questions. Um, we're, we're not a very, um, I wouldn't say structured, but we're not a very uh, tiered organization. We're put pretty flat. Um, it's, it's, it's a culture that I was impressed with from the initial discussions that I had, and it's one that I'm trying to continue to maximize. Um, we, we're, we're about 290 people, employees right now, and there's a lot of benefits to being smaller um, that provide 
you know, the ability to be more efficient than other large organizations where there's a little bit more effort and red tape involved to get things done. So we're pretty nimble. Um, and um, the culture is a big reason for that. We've got a lot of people that are all, you know, working in the same direction. And that's something that I'm just trying to keep moving in that direction. Just when we talk about location, because that single location, multiple location, I think you're in Boston. Where's the rest of the company? Yeah, so um, our U.S. headquarters actually is in Boston. Um, we have offices in Germany, and we have offices in India as well. I'm actually out of Orlando, Florida, in the Lake Maria area, um, although I grew up in the Boston area. But um, yeah, we, that's, we're spread out um, in, that, in those geographies. How do you keep the glue between the people? It's an interesting question, considering I started with this company in the middle of COVID, and I've actually never met anybody in person, <laughs> uh, which if you had told me five, six, three years ago that you'd become a CEO of a company and have never met anybody inside the company, I would have told you that you're on something because um, I don't think that anybody would imagine. But I think you know, one of the things that we've done is um, we, we, do, we did have a concern with people becoming too virtual fatigued in terms of yeah. Zoom calls. But at the same token, we have a very tight knit team and we communicate pretty regularly. Um, communication's always key. I think the key is I've, I've always been a significant fan of radical transparency. Um, and, you know, I find that radical transparency gets a little bit difficult if you're not communicating um, at, at the right interval and right frequency. So I'm just a big proponent of communication. If I get phone calls from team members where there's challenges or issues, it's very rare that my immediate response is, well, did you talk to them? Why don't you call them again? Um, so I just, I'm really, I, I kind of, I'm very much a proponent of the open communication and the open door policy. And in this situation, it's really an open monitor pro policy because we're not all sitting in the same office. Yeah, that's right. It, it is a challenge, right? And already we've had the fortune of having some meetings back together, you know, small scale and stuff. And at least from my perspective, it does remind us, right, that, you know, being face to face does help, right? That, that yes, we proved in COVID, we can close big deals, we can do almost everything, right, virtually, but that doesn't mean, and I think that's what the struggle will be, my opinion, the next six to nine months, is people figuring out what the right balance is. Right. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, in fact, I'm I'm getting ready to hit the road here at the end of July, and I'm going to head up north um, to New York and to Boston, and I'm actually going to meet some of the people that I've been working with face-to-face -face for almost a year now, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it'll definitely be fun, and we're going to have a bunch, uh, you know, within reason, the people that are in the area into one of our offices, um, I think, in the, in the beginning of August, so I'm really looking forward to that, and I do think that there will be an interesting challenge, not only within SmartShift, but just in general to see exactly what the policies are for different companies around the world with regards to, to how, how, many, how, how many people do they send back to the office? Is it optional? Will it be mandatory? What's the flexibility going to look like? I, I believe that it'll, it'll be, you know, every company's a little bit different and, and people will need to decide what works best for them, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Are there acquisitions in your future for, uh, for SmartShift? Sure. So, you know, we we definitely have acquisition as part of our strategy. Um, we're in a really good position right now. Um, we, I'm actively involved in different conversations on a week to week basis. I would say that um, we're open to it. Um, it's definitely a significant part of our strategy. Um, it, it's the type of thing where 
we we would we would move forward um, if it made sense. And we're obviously in, in multiple discussions around this and always doing due diligence to make sure we have the proper information to get to get a gauge on on things. So, yeah, absolutely, for sure. And, you know, you've been around and seen a lot, probably you've seen lots of acquisitions. I know that, but I'm sure you've seen some good ones and some not so good ones. What what do you think the characteristics are of a good acquisition? I think for sure it's taking the time to do the due diligence to get the full picture. Right. I, I think that ultimately um, a positive acquisition um, can be, I guess, delineated from a negative one by really being honest up front in terms of what the target is able to provide and, and, and how that integrates into um, you yourself. I think that um, through some of the some of the not so positive acquisitions that I've seen, I've, I believe that there's been some stop signs that have been blown by. And so for me, I always look at things like, just like in my personal life, I always like to be in a situation where I can say, if a decision that I've made ends up not being the right one, I like to be comfortable in saying, wow, I just did not see that coming. And yeah. if, I can't, if I can't do that, then I realize that I must have just driven right by a stop sign. So I, I guess what I'm saying is the due diligence up front cannot be understated. Um, it, it's it's overstated, I should say. It's really important to make sure you take the time to understand the business, understand the customers, understand most importantly the integration, right? Because what sounds like a good idea up front may very well be a good idea, but once you get into the layers of integration, if it's not a good story there and it's not well thought out, that decision up front could end up doing a 180, and you might be looking back at it saying, "Well, we should just have not gone down that path." I often talk about with uh, in these podcasts about how people make decisions, right? And you know, the, you probably quickly found out already that the CEO position could be a lonely position, right? Because <laughs> uh, in the end, it's up to you, right? Which is uh, rewarding for many of us, but also we surround ourselves with good people and all the other stuff, but it still can be lonely, right? Um, so what? What? Wh how do you triangulate your point of view? How do you think you're getting, a, making a good decision, um, you know, Looking back on your career, what have you learned? I've learned that um, it, it's it's leveraging your resources is not an underrated activity, right? Um, I, I put a lot of stock in um, leveraging my resources from a awareness standpoint, from a guidance standpoint. Um, I, I there's a fine line between leveraging your resources and and uh, you know, over analysis equaling paralysis type of thing, right? You got to find the fine line, but I'm one that doesn't rush um, into anything. Um, but at the same token, if I go through my process and I determine that I think that something is, is I should move on something, I will move, but it's typically not until I've done my, my analysis of it and I've kind of um, leveraged my network um, to get guidance and input. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very big on input from people that have direct experience that can help me selfishly avoid headaches. Um, and so uh, I think the thing that I've learned is that, that the process that I have, while it's definitely not perfect, it is a process and it's one that has, has yielded pretty good results. But at the same token, I'm, I'm always learning and I'm always willing to incorporate different pieces into my process from people that I've worked with that I've seen have success. Um, so I think process is key. And if you don't have one, it's just like, you know, not having a plan when you're trying to achieve a goal, it's probably not likely to, 
to convert. Speaking of that, did any mentors along the way come to your mind? Yeah, I would say so for sure. So um, when I first got into, um, I think it was the second technology company that that I that I joined. It was uh, Akamai Technology. Um, there was a guy by the name of Danny Lewin um, who started Akamai. Uh, he won one of the entrepreneurial um, contests at MIT that eventually rolled into the the founding of Akamai. And the way that I met um, Danny was uh, at the time I was I don't, 25 years old and I was in support and I ended up on a um, pretty escalated conference call between the CIO of CNN and the founder of our company. And when I got on the phone, I was nervous and I didn't know whether or not I was more nervous to be talking to the guy that ran C uh, technology for CNN or the guy that's the founder of the company. But I could not believe how down to earth both of these people were. Um, and I had always believed in the notion that everybody puts on their pants the same way. But it was very apparent to me at that point that it was absolutely true. And so from that point, I think Danny probably not only turned into a mentor for me because I got to work with him on a few different occasions, but I think he might have been my first like work hero, if you will, a guy that I looked at and listened to and said, man, if I can be half of what that guy is, I'm going to be in a real good spot. So um, I learned a ton from working with him. There were a few others at SAP that I learned a ton from as well. Um, Steve Lucas was one of them. Um, Greg McStravick was another. So there's, there's been a few of those um, guys that have definitely made an impact um, on my career from a mentorship standpoint. Can never have too many good mentors, right? Can be Absolutely. Able to do that. Question I like to ask everybody is what's the best career advice you ever got? I got a couple, but I think number one would be um, take the shot, right? Take a chance. Don't, don't ever, like I try and I, I tell my kids this all the time. One of the things that I've kind of based my life and my career on is that I don't, you don't want to be in a situation where you have regrets, right? So take a shot and don't be afraid to fail. And if you're going to fail, oftentimes it's better to fail faster because you don't, and I've, I've said this to my kids and the teams that I coach in youth sports, you know, you, you win or learn, you don't lose. So if you're afraid to take the shot, you're delaying the ability to learn. So um, I got guidance that a lot of this was built off early on in my career and I believed in it and, uh, and I believe it today. Derek Oates, thank you for being on CEO to CEO today. Uh, great conversation. Love the Hassel Plotner story. And I like, uh, you know, win or learn. All of those are good advice for people. So thanks to everybody for tuning in this week and uh, tune in again next week when we have another great CEO to CEO conversation. Thanks, Derek. Thank you for joining the CEO to CEO podcast. Join us next time as we uncover data strategies to support mergers, acquisitions, divestitures with the world's top CEOs.